Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. If you have a hard copy Bible, turn your pages really fast because I want to hear them. That's one of the things being around um, Redemption Gilbert for as many years as I've been around that I always loved is how many people had their Bibles. I know now a lot of you have them electronically, so figure out a way to set like a beeping button when you turn the pages so we can all hear that we actually are a Bible people. Um, But before we read this passage, I want to give you a little bit of a context here. Starting in Romans 12, Paul has begun to talk about what it is to now live in the reality of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And the first thing he says in chapter 12 is that we are to present our bodies, our whole lives as living and as living sacrifices to God and that this will be a sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to the Lord. We present ourselves. He then goes on and just talks about love, that the Christian life is a life of love. Now, the challenge with that word in our culture is we have so minimized it to mean something so shallow or we've made it so nebulous as to mean, I'm not sure totally what that means. If you followed it all, Paul doesn't make this nebulous and this concept of love certainly isn't shallow. Paul talks about love as the mark of the true Christian. He talks about it as the greatest thing in the world. And in chapter 14 and 15, he's speaking specifically to the church. If we are the ones who have followed Jesus and have faith in him, how do we live together amidst our differences? Now realize here, Paul is talking to a church that has both Jews and Gentiles. He's dealing with a situation that involves meat in the baseline of a bunch of people didn't think you should eat meat and other people thought it was fine to eat meat and he went, hey, there are differences of opinion. Don't divide over them. That's why in Romans 14 he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him not to quarrel over opinions. Now opinions are different than truth. Things that are Spot on, absolute truth. Paul is very clear. Don't sway from those. But when it comes to opinions, if we're going to have a loving community, a loving community that testifies to the world, we've got to deal with each other's differences. And they're dealt with according to love. So let's read now Romans 15, 1 through 7. He says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let me read that again. And not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And through endurance... And through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony, key word, harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Of God. Father, we pray that you would attend your word and do all that you intend for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have a two and a half year old daughter. She's here. And we named her, you can keep that up here just for a second. We named her Harmony. 
You heard that verse or that word in the passage we're in. We're named her Harmony. And when I sent a text message to our friend, when the Lord brought us Harmony, I sent a text message to one of my friends and said we named her Harmony. And my friend, uh, Brian Berger, who's one of my best friends, is actually a pastor here on staff, texted me back Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14 is the section where Paul's talking about the new self, the way we're supposed to live if we're in Christ. And he lays out all of these virtues, but then he ends it with this verse in Colossians 3.14. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So that's become my prayer for harmony, that she would be love that binds everything in our family together. That hasn't happened yet, so... Keep, keep praying with me on behalf of it. But love is that which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love is that which will contribute to us as a church being a harmonious community. If you look at what Paul says in these seven verses, he ends it with saying, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. He talks about that God will be glorified in our unity, in our harmony together. And he says the only way to accomplish that, earlier up in the verse, is to actually seek the good of other people. So here's what we're going to look at today through this passage is what's the primary obstacle to harmonious community? And then we're going to look at what is the main guide to harmonious community? And then what's a model or who is a model that we could follow to get to harmonious community. The main obstacle, the main obstacle to harmonious community is me. Now, I don't, I mean me, but I don't literally mean me. I don't mean me at the level of getting you off the hook. I know a bunch of people in the room were like, I knew the main obstacle was him. No, it's you. And it's me. The main obstacle to harmonious community, the main obstacle to true relationships, the main obstacle to love is the me that constantly is rearing its head. The I that is constantly rearing its head. I had a friend of mine uh, give me a comic this week, and it's a comic that is called Coffee with Jesus. And one of the main characters in the Coffee with Jesus comic strip is this guy, Carl. So in this one, he's sitting down with Jesus, having a cup of coffee. And he says to Jesus, do I have any idols that need smashing, Jesus? Now, if you're in here and you go, idols, what is that language? That sounds weird. Idols just simply mean things that are more important in your life than Jesus. Or another way you could say it is all those things in your life that have functional functional control of you, whether you recognize it or not. Idols, those things that are driving you fundamentally. So Carl says, Jesus, do I have any idols in my life that needs crushing? And I love this. Jesus has his cup of coffee like this, like he's about to take a sip, and he says, I admire your honest introspection, Carl. And yes, you have some things in your life that could take a back seat to me, for sure. And then Carl, with this big smile, says, I know, I know. I bet it's football. And there's a bunch of women in here hitting their husbands going, yeah, it's football. Today, help me clean up the house. Don't watch seven games, right? So maybe it's football. And then he goes, oh, sports in general. 
Carl says, in sports in general, and entertainment. And then he goes, oh, food. Oh, God, how I love food. And then Jesus says this to him. All of these are great targets, Carl, but let's smash the biggest idol first. I call it Carl. <laughs> and I love that, one, because it made me laugh a little bit, but at the same time, it's exactly what God is saying to us. It's exactly what God is saying to us is what gets in the way of us living in true relationship with one another, us having harmonious community. And hear this for all of you who are out there going, I don't know if I care much about real relationships or community. It's also the thing that me that raises its head is that thing that stands between you and ultimate joy and happiness. Now, I'm pretty certain, regardless of your belief, as you sit in this room, you want to be happy. And Jesus actually says that he's the one who came to give life and give it to the full, or give it, other translations say, abundantly. Now, if you knew what stood between you and the abundant life, if you knew there was something there, you'd say, tell me what it is. And Jesus is saying, it's actually you. It's the me that constantly is rearing its head. And then if you knew, it's the very thing that's standing in between me and relationships, where typically we go, no, what's standing in between me and all those people is them. And he's going, no, 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 it's actually you. So in verse 7, he says, welcome others as Christ has welcomed you. Now, we'll spend some time on how Christ has welcomed us. But here's a thought. I think putting a welcome sign up is far easier than actually being welcoming. There's stages to this. There's levels to which being a harmonious community or a hospi hospitable place is easier and or it's harder. So a welcome sign is easy, but I would even argue if you think of your, the businesses that you love, that you would go, they're very hospitable, or restaurants that you love that are very hospitable, I would tell you it's easier to be hospitable to a customer that you know, one, you're making money from, and two, you know they're about to leave in an hour. That's way easier than having a hospitable staff back of house. Right? Have you ever been to a place like that? You're like, I love how every time they give me my food and I say thank you, they say, my pleasure. Like, I love that. That's amazing. But then you like look to the back of house and you see these people scathing. They're not saying my pleasure, right, to one another. I have this place I love to attend, and the girl, when you walk in, she's super bubbly. How are you doing today, Tyler? I am great. And there's been numbers of times I've seen, as I sat, sit with my meal, I'll look behind, then a glaring look of daggers to another staff member, right? And that's because it's easier to do it like that, where I'm going off to then have my meal, than the people you're near in proximity to all the time. This is why there's many men and women in this room who go to work and everybody goes, they're amazing people, so nice, so kind, so caring, and their families are like, really? Like, where does that guy go on the drive home? <laughs> or where does she go? Because that's not what we experience. The nearer in proximity, which this passage actually talks about in verse 2, to please his neighbor, neighbor literally means those who are near to us. And the reason when it gets closer is the closer you're with people, the more you and I get exposed. 
the nearer and longer you're with those people, the more it gets exposed. He's just said in Romans chapter 14, 1, and in chapter, and in verse 1 of chapter 15, that there are differences amongst people. There's things that people do that annoy the snot out of me and you. Like the way they talk or the way they walk or the views that they hold. I have vehement disagreements with them. This is so interesting what Paul does because he's going, you have these disagreements which tend to divide you. And now he's going to begin to say, but I'm telling you, don't let those divide. Love and become of the same mind. I don't know if you remember this. In the book of Acts, there's this statement that many capitalists hate because it sounds like communism. But it says that they had all things in common. If you ever read that and you're realistic, you're going, really? All things? There's no way they had all things in common. But there are these passages in the rest of the New Testament that speak to what happens in the church. That even in a church where there's Jew and Gentile, Paul talks about in in Colossians, that there's barbarian, Scythian, slave-free... You could say that any way you want, whether it's Republican, Democrat, whether it's, you know, he's formerly Irish Catholic or he's, you know, Scottish. He's from Gilbert. They're from Tempe. I mean, whatever difference you wanted to make. He's going, all the differences are here, whether barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But here, there is no difference because Christ is all and in all. Now, that doesn't just mean because we raise the banner of Jesus that everybody goes, there's no differences anymore. But it's something in Jesus that we believe and adhere to allows us to love in spite of our differences. Now, if the loving in spite of our differences, the main obstacle to that is me, that means there's something in Jesus, in my faith in him and my union with him, that literally allows me to die to myself. That's what he says here. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. But to put the interests of others is more important. That's where he goes here. But to let us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. All of a sudden it doesn't become about me. It becomes about them. Now, that's essential to harmonious community. The me is the problem. My father-in-law was the founding pastor of this congregation, Tom Schrader. You guys have heard him teach. Many of you guys love him and have been um, deeply influenced by him, as I have. Um, He and Sandy just got married, I don't know, maybe it's a couple years ago now. Um, And when he got married, many of us asked him, hey, so how's the marriage going? And his answer was, it's going great because we have one thing in common. Now, your thought is he's going to say, like the scripture said, Jesus. But here's what he said. It's going great because we have one thing in common. Oh, yeah, what's that? We both love me. (laughs) And I love that. And it's, it's laughing. It's good recognition. It's humorous to a level. But the reality is... In a marriage, that's the most destructive thing in the world. He's joking, right? But it's the most destructive thing in the world. A person that's all about me and another person who's consistently serving them. Now, the most marriages are two people that are all about them. And that's what's amazing fundamentally about love. And I think what will do us a real service here to understand actually that sin is anti-love. Sin is the bending in towards yourself. God made us in his image as those who love 
are meant to, in our very human nature, be those who love. But sin comes and distorts and twists. So what sin does is it takes us who've been made to look outward at God and at other people. And it turns us, it twists us to look inward and to be all about ourselves. So one author says this. Yes, God is love, and we were called to resemble him as lovers. And so we do have an impulse to love. You can't get away from that. You are going to love. The question is, what are you going to love? He goes on and he says, but that impulse first leaks out in badly perverted form. Twisted form. What's the badly perverted form? We love ourselves for our own sake. The badly perverted form is that we love ourselves for our own sake. And then he gets a little more right where we live. In other words, we're selfish. I love me and I think you should too. You should cooperate with my commitment to love myself for my sake. With my well-being being being the greatest good. Now, just real quick. If you're sitting there going, I don't do that, slap your hand and say, I'm a liar, okay? But truthfully, that's what, even in Christians, we have this thing called the flesh that remains in us even when we believe. And it's that element that the me raises its ugly head consistently. And it's the thing that divorces us from real joy and real relationship with others and with God. But it's this, you should cooperate with my commitment to love myself for my sake, with my well-being, being the greatest good. If we all do that, we can't have community. We can't have families. We can't have societies. He then says, if you need an illustration of this attitude, spend time with any child under the age of three. And then he says this, for all of us who said amen, and with most adults. That's the main obstacle. So the answer to that is a dying to self. Jesus said himself that there isn't many ways. He said, but if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, many of you in here go, that sounds like hell. Die? You're calling me to die. But then he says this, if you want to find your life, you'll lose it. And in losing your life, you'll find it. Here's the reason you think it sounds like hell, is that sin is all over you, lying to you, making you think that life's found in you getting what you want, that life is found when everybody views the world the way you view the world. That's when things will be right. When everybody understands that you're the center of attention, when you just get what you want, then you'll be happy. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Actually, when you're freed from the sin that makes you focus on yourself. You're free to set your life behind to put other people's needs as more important to you, more important than your own. That is where we find life and the recipe for harmonious community. So the statement is that I said last time I was on this platform, if love is what God is after in us, through us, and in our community, that we might display it to the world, we must understand that death is at the center of love. Death is at the center of love. That is worth writing down and meditating on. So now, 
if death is at the center of love, what's our guide to keep us on track and get us there? What's our guide? The main guide of us living in harmonious community is the Bible, the Word of God. Look at what he says here in verse 4. For what was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now here he's clearly speaking of the Old Testament because much of the New Testament hadn't even been gathered yet. But Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy that the New Testament scriptures are the word of God. And he speaks that all scripture is inspired by God, God breathed, and useful and profitable for teaching, instruction, rebuke, training in righteousness. That the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped to live the life God has called us to live as Christians. Not to live the life of the super spiritual Christians, but to live the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is the life where we love, which is where death is at the center of. Where we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. That's the normal Christian life, not the super spiritual Christian life. The other day I was at Trader Joe's and I was just getting an easy lunch at the Trader Joe's in Tempe, McClintock, and Guadalupe. And as I came through the line, two of the guys working there were having a conversation about NFL football. And they were having a conversation about this article that had come out about America's new team. You know, America's team. Who's America's team? The Cowboys. But not according to this article. It's now the Denver Broncos. So there's two things that's going to get me into any conversation. If I hear somebody talking about God... Jesus, this sounds like I'm trying to pat myself on the back, but I'm not. I'm, I'll talk about it. And the other thing is the Denver Broncos. I'm going to talk about them. I grew up in Denver, so I hear him talking about the Broncos. And what this guy's saying is he's so angry about all the fair weather fans. So fair weather fans, essentially, if you don't know the, the terminology, it's phonies. People who, when somebody wins, they jump on what's called the, the proverbial bandwagon, right? So I say, I'm a Bronco fan. And he goes, are you a bandwagon Bronco fan? I said, no, I grew up there my entire life and I absolutely love the Broncos. He said, well, then you're not a phony. And here was his frustration, is that Fairweather fans, in his mind, Fairweather fans and bandwagon fans are phonies. And there's phonies all over the place, right? The crazy part is, is there's a phony in all of us all the time too. But there's phonies all over the place. The Bible speaks about this, that there's actually phony Christians and real Christians that when the day of judgment comes, that many will stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? And then they'll list a bunch of things that we did. And he'll make this statement of, depart from me, I never knew you. And that, that's a little freaky, by the way. Worth heeding a little bit. Um, but there's phony Christians. There's also phonies when they say, I believe the Bible's the word of God. There's phonies in this room, by the way. And in, I would say all of us are to some level. And Here's why. All of us have two Bibles that are actually different Bibles. Okay, there's all of us, and me included, have two Bibles. One's the real Bible, right? This Bible, which is the Word of God. From Genesis all the way to Revelation, every word in it is God-breathed. It's inspired, and it is the authoritative Word of God. If you are a Christian, the Bible is not one book amongst many religious texts. But Christians believe the Bible is public truth. It's true truth. This is the word of God. It's what Hebrews chapter 4 says, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. 
It divides bone and marrow and it judges the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. It judges our very motives. It is the words that bring life. It is the words that bring transformation. It's the word of God, Peter says, that makes us be so transformed inside that the only term the scriptures could have for it is we were born again. We're born again by the living and abiding word of God. There's that word of God, the whole Bible. And then we all have another Bible. And I'll call it our functional Bible. And this is the Bible we function out of. We have the parts of it we like. And then we have the parts we don't like that we just disregard. That we read over. Those passages that we're never going to highlight. Those passages that we tend to run from. Or those passages we like to say, oh yeah, but. I've had an opportunity to teach um, quite a bit in Romans. From Romans chapter 12 throughout in all the different redemption congregations. And I don't know if I've ever had a time of teaching where I've had more people in this section on love that is getting so concrete on what love is. More people who come up to me and go, okay, I know the Bible says that. I know the text says that. But, and then I'll say, your problem's your butt. Not literally, but your problem's your butt. <laughs> because if this is the word of God, it means something. You believe it to be the word of God, not that is meant to bring death, but that which is to bring life. That we don't stand over the word of God, we stand under it. So what that means for us is you cannot continue to open the Bible or hear the word of God taught and try to say, how do I fit that into my life? You need to be saying, how do I fit my life into that? You see the difference of that? Because your life isn't the goal. God's glory is the goal. His glory is what seeks out the good of the world. His glory is what sets the world straight. His gospel is where there is hope. We don't say, how do I fit that into my life? We say, how do I fit my life into that? Which means the word of God will expose us. I'll tell you, I am amazed... Let's start with my own life, okay? Because it's always easier to point the finger. But we'll get to finger pointing here in a minute. <clears throat> I'm amazed at the number of times I will continually go to the scriptures I like. You know there was uh, Thomas Jefferson? How many of you guys have heard of that guy? Okay, there's a Bible called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And basically what Jefferson did, he made his own functional Bible, but literally, he took scissors and he went through the Bible and everything he didn't like, he just cut out. It's convenient, by the way. Um, so he didn't like miracles, so he cut out the miracles. But he said, I love a lot of the stuff Jesus said, but he did it. And, and most of us, if we're Bible-believing Christians, would go, that's ridiculous. And yet we do it with metaphorical scissors rather than with literal scissors. And I see it in my life all the time. I'll read these passages and go, good God, if you live that. Like, why do I not live it? And i got to be honest, a lot of times I don't live it because I'm scared to death of what the heck that means. Like, what would that mean for me and my family? What would that mean for the car I would drive? What would that mean for the house I live in? What would that mean for my pride? What would that mean for my job? What would that mean for, do I trust God, inevitably? And it is amazing to me as I survey the scene of the church through social media, how oftentimes I'll have this sense of like, are we reading the whole Bible? Or are we just reading the Bible that confirms all of our presuppositions? 
all of the things we want confirmed in us, all of the ways that we can critique all of those other people. But do we ever apply like Jesus' words of take the log out of your own eye first? Do we ever apply the passages that we'll talk about? It judges the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Do we ever heed the passages? Whatever they may be. So I have friends, let's just get in this for a minute, who are on the right and left end of the spectrum in politics and that are believers, like legitimate, confirmed believers. And I don't want to set myself up as the holy middle ground by any stretch of the imagination. But it is amazing to me how based upon our views of the world, how much we toe the line with whatever TV program we're in or whatever political party we align with. So to many of my friends, I want to say, do you not want to heed the Bible's teaching that God values life from cradle to grave? Do you not want to heed the teaching that God is the one who forms a baby together in their mother's womb, that life is there? Do you not want to heed biblical sexual ethics and believe that there is a God who made the world, who intended the world to function some way sexually? Then there's other people that I want to go, do you not realize that God doesn't want just a tip of a hat to the poor? But he calls us to spend ourselves on behalf of the poor. Do you not realize that this very God in these scriptures that you live in will disrupt you at the level of comfort and conveniences that you have that you spend only on yourselves? That I spend only on myself. That's in the Bible. That God cares about orphans and widows in their distress and calls us as Christians to make their problems our problems. Are we reading the same Bible? If we're going to love like that and have harmonious community, we better let the Bible be the Bible in all of its form, in all of its passages. And don't just take some to be more important than others. The guide is the scriptures. So there's some places you can go really practically and functionally when you look at this idea of how do I love. One that's on most wedding invitations. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And evaluate yourself. Because the word of God's the guide. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy and boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Like what if we just applied this to our social media? It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believe all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What if we just took the scriptures and went, that's the word of God. He's calling us to live a life of love. We wrote that all out, and each day we just kind of went, how did I do there? How did I do there? Because everything in your nature and in your flesh is going to lead you more and more to your eyes turning inward and being all about yourself to say, I'm okay. And God's saying, but I want to move you out of that because you're not okay. And I want to move you into the abundant life which I came to give. Which you are going to think is terrifying. Which you are going to think is scary. Which you're going to think is loss. And he's very honest to go, and much of it is loss. But the gain so far outweighs the loss. That you have to have faith to trust that God's going to move you there. It is scary, and there's points of that where I would say I want a model to follow. In verse 3, is very clear that Christ is the model to follow for us in harmonious community. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached 
you fell on me. Christ is the model to harmonious community. Christ is the model to dying to self. Christ is the model to love and to understanding death is at the center of love. Christ is the model to the ultimate surrender to the words of the Father, to the word of God. More than anybody else we know, he was always saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. He is the model to follow. And Jesus, just so you know, is not just the one you go to to have your sins forgiven. He is Savior. Remember these two words you hear in church all the time, so we're going to talk about them here in these last few minutes. He is Savior, but he's also Lord. And he doesn't save you ever to leave you just in his Saviorness. He saves you that you would be freed to live with him as Lord, as King. Christ, what you do, I'm asking you give me the power to do. Christ isn't just that on our behalf. He's also in his very life of dying by considering our needs as more important than their own. And in his death, finding resurrection, he's a model for us to follow. That when we look at somebody else and place their needs as more important than our own, it demands a death to self with a belief that it's there in the low place in the scary place, in the terrifying place that God brings forth his saving nature. He shows himself that he's not just a Lord, but the Lord is one who saves and he resurrects us. But many of us in here never experience and have never experienced resurrection because we're so obsessed with self. We're never gonna go after the other. We're never gonna put somebody's needs above ourselves because we're so obsessed with self and in the end, we never experience intimacy with God. In fact, we may never have ever been Christians. Because this isn't the super spiritual Christian life. This is the normal Christian life. This is what Jesus does consistently. He who was rich became poor on our behalf so that through his poverty we might become rich. He uses what he has on benefit to other people. He is the ultimate model to follow. After the last service, I had a gal come up to me and she said, man, that was great teaching, but here's my question. How do I do it? I want to do it so bad, but it is so, so hard. I'm going home to my teenage kids right after this, and I love them like crazy, but basically what she was saying is, but I'm a wench to them. They drive me crazy, <clears throat> and I want to do it, but I don't. And she's like, and then I walk around like an Eeyore because I'm not doing it, and what is that? Here's the first thing I'd say to you. Jesus is Lord, showing us the way, but he is a savior. This is the most amazing part of Christ, is Christ isn't the same as us. He was God who did this, and when he did it, it's the very engine that gives us the power to do it now. So when you stumble and fall, you stumble and fall going, I stumbled following the Lord, but thank God that Lord is the one who saves me now. Didn't just save me then, he saves me now. It's a great gospel song. If he did it before, he'll do it again. Same God back then, same God right now. Same God, he's the same savior. Now, there was a moment the disciples had with Jesus where he gave them a very tough teaching and they were like, that is impossible. And what's Jesus' famous words? With man, 
This is impossible. But with God, there's a lot of people in here who don't know this, but for those of you who do, say this back to me. But with God, all things are possible. Now look at that in this verse, verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. Who grants it right there? Tell me, who grants it? God. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you. Do you endure when things are easy? Come on. No, you endure when things are hard. That's when we use the word endurance. Have endurance. When in, we endure when things are hard. When do we need encouragement? When things are hard. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with each other. Living in harmony with one another, living in love toward one another is hard. You can't do it on your own. With man, it's impossible. With God, but God, may you grant to us. May you grant to me to live in love, which means to die to self. This is where the phrase I always will put with death is at the center of love is dependence for love. Dependence upon the God who grants for love that we may fulfill, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another. Christ has welcomed you. For it's there in that harmonious, welcoming community that God is glorified. Let's pray. God, we just pray that you would grant us the power to love as you loved. And we acknowledge, God, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us and you loved us. So even when people today, this very day, are terrible to us, might we love them in the power you provide. In Christ's name we pray, amen.